0: Produced by PI Media In May 1940, Rudolf Hess, Nazi Party deputy and Reich minister without portfolio, received a petition written by Hans Kauders, a Jew residing in Vienna. Like Hess himself, Kauders was born in the late 19th century and served on the side of the Central Powers during World War I. By 1940, he, along with other Viennese Jews, had experienced severe persecution, degradation, and violence. Attempting to change his fate, he wrote the following. Dear Reich Minister, As a non-Aryan, severely war-disabled veteran frontline officer of the World War, I take the freedom to direct the following elaborations to you. I am Viennese-born, married, without children, a captain, retired, 60 years old, and have lived in Vienna all my life. Already in March 1938, I had to give back the tobacco kiosk license, which had provided me a middle-class livelihood up to this point, since, as a Jew, I was no longer permitted to stay on as a contractor of the Reich. Since then, entirely without income and work, My wife and I depend on monthly pension payments and are excluded from all cultural establishments. For me, even entering a public garden to get a breath of fresh air is prohibited, and everything only for the reason that I have four Jewish grandparents. Regarding my service during the war, I was gravely injured twice— Taken prisoner of war, my left thigh was amputated at the upper third. For brave conduct facing the enemy, the former emperor awarded me the military merit cross third class. All my efforts to establish a livelihood in a neutral country failed everywhere because of my severe war disability and age, yet I am tied with all the fibers of my heart to my fatherland and would love to serve it further in any capacity." Right minister, you shall be convinced that your philanthropy would not be bestowed on somebody undeserving, but on a man who once fought courageously, shoulder to shoulder, with the Aryan comrades for their mutual fatherland, and who offered a heavy blood sacrifice to his homeland and his people, and who, as an officer and an honest and sincere man, feels deeply hurt now that he is forced to live as a pariah without any fault. Respectfully, Hans Israel Kouders. Hans Kouders, a Jewish war hero, forced by the Nazi authorities to use the middle name Israel given to all male Jews in the Reich, writing to one of the most prominent Nazi leaders of the time requesting his help. Seems unfathomable, yet Kouders was not alone. During World War II, countless petitions were sent by Jewish individuals and groups to different government authorities throughout Europe in the hope of finding a means to stop, or at least delay, the prongs of persecution. Welcome to On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. I'm your host, Nate Nelson. During the Holocaust, the Nazi occupation of vast areas in Western, Central, and Eastern Europe brought a horrible predicament and imminent threat of danger to countless Jewish communities. Almost overnight, people found themselves facing the danger of losing their livelihoods, their dignity, their freedoms, and even their very lives. This danger was omnipresent and ever-growing. Attempting to resist and combat it was a daily struggle. In this episode of our series, we'll examine the widespread phenomenon of wartime Jewish petitions. These entreaties carried urgent, desperate requests to cancel the classification of a person as Jewish, to lift certain dehumanizing penalties, or even to delay the deportation of a person to the camps in the East. Many petitions were sent in a race against time. A petition getting turned down could practically mean a death sentence. As surprising as it may seem, many Jews actually believed that they had the legal means to change the policies of a tyrannical regime and affect their own fate. Were Jewish petitions only a desperate plea, or was there something else to them? What can they teach us about Jews in the Holocaust? Helping us today to answer these questions is Professor Thomas Peglo Kaplan, who, together with Professor Wolf Gruner, edited the book resisting persecution, shoes, and their petitions during the Holocaust.
1: My name is uh, Thomas Peglo Kaplan, and uh, I'm the director of the Center for Judaic Holocaust and Peace Studies at Appalachian State University, which is one of the public universities in the UNC system, so in North Carolina in the United States.
0: Peglow Kaplan's interest in petitions developed quite early in his academic career. While writing his dissertation in 2004, his research dealt with people whom the Nazis suspected of being Jewish or Mischling, the Nazi label for the offspring of mixed Jewish and non-Jewish parentage. During this research, he discovered that one of many types of people using petitions were people trying to shed the Jewish label as designated by the state.
1: There was, of course, a veritable obsession with finding determining people's, quote, racial descent, especially in cases of doubt. And there were always doubts, uh, even all the way to the upper ranks of the Nazi party. I mean, uh, some of the kind of, you know, wordings sometimes or suspicion that were kind of launched even against Hydrich, the head of the vice Security Main Office of some alleged Jewish ancestry. So that became really veritable, cons- uh, like, obsession for the state. And as a result, of course, uh, you know, people within the party, it's kind of one segment precisely, or within the Volksgemeinschaft, the people's community, were, in fact, figuring out ways to, uh, in fact, kind of escape what, in their view from the Nazi, was, of course, a stigma, also, of course, uh, as the Shoah began then in 1941 for it to really automate potentially even a danger to their lives, and they started to
0: petition. The widespread nature of the phenomenon of petitioning, which was not limited to the classification of someone as Jewish or non-Jewish alone, quickly became clear.
1: When I came across these type of very specific petitions, it struck me because there were quite a number of them. Um, I didn't document as many, but the statistical evidence I found like put it all the way to 160,000. And once I started then uh, digging and looking up closer, I realized this, of course, was anything but confined to this very specific group of people or groups, but in fact was a much, much broader practice uh, that in fact also reached into uh, the regular Jewish communities, uh, and not just in the Reich, but actually across the continent and
0: beyond. Up until recently, petitions sent by Jews to different authorities during the Holocaust were largely overlooked by researchers. They were often dismissed as an ineffective tool, a desperate cry for help aimed at a non-responsive hostile regime. This perception went hand-in-hand with the claim that, in many instances, Jews during the Holocaust failed to adequately perceive the gravity of the events at hand. They were seen as comparatively inactive, choosing to not truly confront or resist the reality of their situation. However, in their book... Gruner and Peglo Kaplan together with other researchers show how in fact this is a rather simplistic understanding of Jewish resistance, one which misrepresents the complex reasonings for Jewish activity or inactivity and the true meaning of wartime petitioning. So, why did Jews choose to petition? Firstly, it's important to remember that in fact this practice was hardly a new one.
1: Uh, there are, of course, uh, uh, long histories of petitioning practices. Uh, in fact, not just in the Middle Ages, uh, but even, in fact, earlier to the um, Roman Republic and then also Roman uh, Empire, uh, where they were also used to, in fact, request uh, certain favors uh, from the ruler, from the emperor in this regard. But it's important, too, to keep this longer history into consideration. There's a long history we can trace of petitioning practices uh, from uh, Jews uh, of various parts
0: uh, of Europe. This practice of petitioning had been used by Jews throughout history when they were persecuted or felt injustice, and this action proved, in many cases, successful. Sensing their vulnerable position, the Jews of Europe in the period leading up to the Holocaust and during the war years turned once again to petitioning. Shifting borders, deportation, or refugee appeals to different countries, and shifting immigration policies meant many petitioners were in situations extending beyond a single country
1: not exclusively, but often we have the transnational dimension that some of the lingo, some of the strategies, some of the approaches really being circulated across borders and not just used in the Reich, like in Berlin or Frankfurt or Cologne or Hamburg, uh, but in fact, and also circulating like into the protectorate, like into uh, German-occupied France or like into Hungary or whatsoever. And then uh, really in a fascinating way kind of figuring out ways, again, expressed in the desperation of the petitioners of trying to get anything Kind of possible to get a break and to escape, uh, you know, whatever kind of fate uh, lay ahead.
0: Though at times anonymous, the vast majority of these petitions, as in Hans Kauder's case, had clearly identifiable authors. On many occasions, Jews had to make painful and difficult claims while writing their petitions. For many of them, this meant, first and foremost, denying their Jewish heritage their parents or grandparents, and in fact, their own identities, which was, of course, a challenging process. However, some of those petitioning to the Nazi regime did not consider themselves to be Jewish. The Nazi Nuremberg laws decreed that every person with at least one Jewish grandparent was partially Jewish. Mischlings Weitengrades or Mischling Ersten Grades. This meant that even some people born Christian and practicing Christian faith could be classified as Jews. This was the case of Walter Jelinek, a high-ranking legal scholar born in 1885 in Vienna, who was registered as a Jew but was later baptized.
1: Uh, his father also was a legal scholar. Uh, of course, it was very, very difficult for anybody of Jewish background uh, to get any uh, university share in Germany, so in the Reich, right? So we're talking about the Kaiserreich, of course. So often, of course, that required conversion. The father was re- really turning agnostic, but once his own father, so grandfather, died, um, who was a-, a rabbi, the son decided then to have the his own son, so Walter, baptized uh, to give him more opportunities in this regard.
0: Following his father's footsteps, Walter Jelinek became a leading legal scholar and gained an influential status in legal and academic circles.
1: He started out his career by kind of co-writing, revising uh, the highly influential works that his father had produced, right, and during the empire already. And then in the Weimar Republic, he started to make quite a career, not to say that anti-Semitism disappeared, quite the opposite, but nonetheless, uh, a successful career. At this point, of course, uh, he had converted, right? He was a member of the Protestant church, and he was actually even slated to take over to become so the, the rector of, of the Heidelberg University. This, of course, no longer came to pass after 1933.
0: After his standing in the university and his place in German society was hindered by the Nazi persecution, he began sending out petitions to various Nazi officials, hoping to get exemptions from anti-Semitic laws and eventually even trying to cancel his classification as Jewish.
1: Jelinek started petitioning and you know relatively kind of early on uh, already thirty three thirty four he also was concerned about his children especially his, his daughter wanted to study at university and of course would have also barred if that overall racial classification of Jelinek as a quote unquote full jew by nazi law and standard would be upheld so he started petitioning um first the, at the local level right so at the university then of course to the gao uh, then uh, of course, to the interior ministry and eventually figuring out the distinct shifts and changes. Also in the legal system, of course, directly petitioning uh, Hitler, because at this point uh, we have, uh, of course, the vice, you know, of the prerogative state. So we have a petition. Then, of course, um, Hitler didn't decide on it, very likely that he ever read it. Uh, so then the various officials there were working on the case. Now, of course, in his case, it took all the way to 1941. So we're talking about an excessively long time.
0: Jelinek's background as a leading legal scholar helped him carefully navigate the Nazi legal justice system and make his case vigorously to various agencies and bodies in the Nazi apparatus.
1: Jelinek, in many ways, of course, is not typical, because uh, he was a very prominent legal scholar, uh, so he was not just reading the legal uh, discourses over petitioning, he in fact uh, also uh, was, uh, prior to the Third Reich, uh, contributing to them uh, quite distinctly, especially the overall question of petitioning as an individual right. He was continually tapping into these transnational networks, I was uh, alluding to was in the pre-war period, even sending out, uh, paying, of course, that was also, you had the resources to do it, right, to have folks go out, contacted, uh, you know, relatives, uh, also in the protectorate and elsewhere in, in Hungary, to do research on the family, uh, to sustain his uh, bizarre-sounding construct of the Aryan religious
0: Jew. Since Jelenek's membership in a Protestant church and his father's conversion were not enough, he decided to make the case that his entire family was actually of secret Christian origin and only converted to Judaism in the first place due to religious persecution by the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor in the 18th century.
1: The background was that the family had been forced to uh, convert uh, under Joseph II. Right when they were given, I mean, so it was uh, supposedly like a Christian sect, and they were given the option under Joseph II, right, either to uh, convert to the true Christian religion, which of course was Catholicism from the view of the of the Habsburg right uh, dynasty, uh, or of course something else, go to Judaism, and so they opted actually for Judaism. So that was the distinct reasoning that you try to get support for. So in forty one, it was decided it would be rejected, and he would be classified. As as Jewish by Nazi law. Uh, In his case, of course, again, that didn't end his petitioning. He was working at the local level, getting support from the mayor and all of it, of Heidelberg, among others, where he lived.
0: Despite the fact that his petition was eventually rejected, Jelinek managed to buy precious time and protect most members of his family from deportation and death
1: he actually survived i mean not unfortunately his brother who was taken and picked up by the gestapo brutally uh, beaten and all of it in prison and then died afterwards but most of the family members you know did
0: the eventual success of janek's efforts brings an important question into this discussion were petitions successful In the simple sense of how many petitions achieve their stated goal, Peglo Kaplan explains that strictly in terms of acceptance rates, the figures are quite low.
1: The question of how to understand success, if the overall measurement is, you know, did the petitioner, you know, get what they wanted and is that our measure of success? Right. Then, of course, one has to say that, that the overall success rate in this case or the, the achievement was relatively low and modest. So petitions for exemptions from the Nuremberg laws, for example, right? the Reichentier ministry after 35 until the early 40s processed about like 10,000 right? about um, application, all of it. So the success rate was, was relatively low, far below, like even under 5%.
0: Despite the failure of many petitions, it seems that some were accepted by authorities. However, it is difficult for us to examine the success of many petitions since we don't always have the full background of the petitioners and their true motives.
1: Many of those petitions, of course, kind of are only kind of snippets in many ways, right? So, so we sometimes only have the name of the petitioner. Uh, we have the distinct reasoning. We have a little bit of a background, but there's really not that much material to be found in this regard, as opposed to cases like Yelinac, which are very well documented.
0: The case of Volter Jelinek also proves that even when a petition failed, it could sometimes buy time for the petitioner and greatly help their chances. For petitioners, the lengthy process of looking into petitions could work in their favor.
1: we see, in fact, that not in all cases, but in many cases, uh, like uh, processing petitions, especially pre-war, also early um, war period, especially looking at the Reich or Western Europe, took quite a long time. It was not just done like in a few weeks and months. Uh, and in most cases, the processing agency actually, you know, ordered others, including the Gestapo, not to deport right after the deportation started at 4142. That bought time. And what we we'll see. When I looked at the Yad Vashem and going through petitions that were going to the Ujeev, so the organization um, brought about by the Nazis, we see uh, a number of examples in which this actually worked out in somebody's favor. So the petitions were in process. And then they were kind of going back or trying to get back to the petitioners, like a few months later. Uh, And then the record shows that the petitioners no more to be found.
0: We cannot know for sure whether this was a planned strategy of petitioners or an unintended result of bureaucratic procrastination. But petitions did manage to help quite a few Jews escape Nazi-controlled territories or get into hiding.
1: I looked at some of the records uh, that we have available of the survivors, but also others uh, actually got out uh, across the Pyrenees, right, into Spain, and then no further south. So, this was not a minor uh, affair, right? The same goes, of course, for those who, who weren't as flexible and couldn't travel and didn't have the support that needed that required, but they were going into hiding. Well, going into hiding is not simply like you leave your apartment and you go underground. It also, of course, takes tremendous resources and also preparation, right? You need to find people who are supplying you with foodstuff and whatsoever.
0: The case of Joseph Eppelberg, a Jewish refugee in German-occupied France imprisoned in the Jansi camp in the outskirts of Paris, also demonstrates at least some level of success. While Eppelberg was imprisoned, his wife sent out a petition to Nazi occupation authorities asking for him to be released due to his value to the Third Reich as a skilled worker in the fur industry. Documents from the 1940s clearly show that her efforts were initially successful and that Eppelberg was released from Drancy.
1: So, and that got him off the hook got him released from Drancy. Uh, Again, I haven't been able to find, and sometimes the spelling is also a little different. Uh, I didn't see any one of the two under the victims in any of the uh, comprehensive uh, collections we have, be it Yad Vashem or elsewhere, of the victims of the Shoah. doesn't mean that that he didn't perish in the end, but at least at this point I can't establish it. There's a chance, and again, uh, that that he got out and sometimes into hiding.
0: As for Cowder's, the World War I veteran who petitioned Rudolf Hess, we know that he was deported from Vienna to Theresienstadt on September 10, 1942, where he most likely perished, his pleas for help left unanswered. It seems that some petitioners truly believed that they could convince the Nazi regime and other collaborating authorities to make an exception of them while others mostly tried to buy time for themselves and their families, successfully tricking and outsmarting the Nazi bureaucratic apparatus. Some petitioners, like Jelinek, used elaborate historical claims dating back to the 18th century, while others, like Eppelberg, made the simple case that they were useful to the Wehrmacht. Above all else, petitions help us better understand the different strategies different Jews took in order to protect themselves. Despite the misconception that Jews did not resist the Nazi persecution and extermination, petitions demonstrate a hidden world of Jewish resistance. Using history, rhetoric, legal machinations, and even taking advantage of bureaucratic procrastination, many Jews tirelessly struggled to save themselves and their loved ones. With that, we come to a close. If you'd like to hear more about the Holocaust, visit yadvashem.org. This has been On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, hosted by me, Nate Nelson. Our program is produced by Jonathan Clapsaddle, Erit Dagan, Daphna delinko Danny Timor, and Ron Levy. This episode was written by Agam Kedem Levy and edited by Dor Shafir. Thanks for listening. Hit subscribe for more stories like this.